Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open with me to Romans, Romans chapter 8. We'll be in two texts. We'll start in Romans 8, and we'll actually be more or less expositing from Romans chapter 12, but we'll be in both in the book of Romans. So if you turn to the Romans chapter 8, you'll find yourself pretty close to chapter 12, and you won't have to turn very further to get there when we get there. It's really a joy on Sunday evenings to be going through a series on the Holy Spirit. This is now the seventh such message in that series. And each Sunday should be marked by a deeper meditation on the passion of Christ and certainly on his triumphant resurrection from the dead. And the Holy Spirit plays a key role in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so as we've been studying pneumatology on the doctrine of the Spirit, we've no doubt touched on the power of God even in resurrection. In this text, Romans 8, Paul says the same Spirit who gave life to raise Jesus from the dead, is the same Spirit who will give life to your body, if you are a believer, to raise you from the dead. Note, just for a moment, the verse that highlights this in Romans 8, verse 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit of life is because of righteousness. That is an amazing and an eternal promise that should fill you with hope. The Holy Spirit grants us life. Just as Jesus gloriously burst forth from the grave, so also you one day will hear the Lord's voice to never die again. How amazing is that? This is our ultimate hope, and it's the reason we cling to the Lord Jesus every single day. But think of it. Just in light of that verse, the same powerful spirit who can bring dead to life is at work in our lives right now by that same ineffable power. That is incredible. And that is what we've been studying in this Holy Spirit series. Let's pick up our reading. Romans 8, beginning in verse 9. It says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of God, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. How incredible to know there is power in the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may think that all seems really well and good, but to be honest with you, I'm not feeling that kind of power right now. I mean, that is powerful. I don't know if I feel that kind of power. And I certainly sometimes don't feel like I feel that, you might be saying, in light of what I'm reading in the New Testament, when we see these miraculous things that have been taking place. And over the last two times we've been in this series, we've noted something that may have immediately kind of discouraged you, because you're saying, well, all of that powerful, miraculous stuff in the Holy Spirit is doing in the New Testament, it seems is not happening now, so where's the power for today? First, there was the ministry of Jesus, who ministered through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the reason he begins his ministry at his baptism, where the Spirit of God descends like a dove, and Jesus opens the eyes of the blind in his earthly ministry. He heals leprous people whose skin was rotting from their bodies. He casts out demons. He even brought dead people back to life. That is incredible. And you might be saying, if I saw that at work today, certainly I would believe in the power of the Holy Spirit because I would see it. And second, there was the ministry of the apostles who ministered through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus passes on these gifts to the apostles so that they would have hard proof that they spoke in the name of Christ. In Jerusalem, after the church began, they were laying sick people on the street, we are told, hoping that Peter's shadow would cast over the sick people and they would be healed. That's how miraculous is taking place. Peter even raises Tabitha from the dead. In Ephesus, we are told in Acts 19, the Spirit was working in such miraculous ways through Paul that people were even taking their handkerchiefs, if you can imagine this, and their aprons to touch Paul with the handkerchief and then bring the handkerchief to sick people and even to use that handkerchief to cast out demons of their friends who didn't go up to Paul. And guess what the result was? It worked, actually. And we read of that kind of powerful moving of the Holy Spirit and we think, nothing like that happens in my life. Now, I should say there are a lot who claim that apostolic miracle gifts happen and are ongoing regular part of the church today, and I should add that we don't believe that. We've actually spent at least three messages explaining why that isn't the case. But whatever miraculous things some people say are ongoing are not like what we're reading in Acts and the Apostles and these other things. The biblical and historical record points to the fact that the miraculous and sign gifts died with the last apostles and no longer function in the church today in any regulative or normal practice. And that only makes our observations about the miraculous gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament more palatable in some kind of ways, but also kind of weird. Does the Holy Spirit manifest itself in power today? Well, I would say most definitely yes. In fact, the rest of this series on the Holy Spirit will seek to demonstrate the Holy Spirit's power in your life today. We have spent the previous six messages really laying a groundwork, kind of rifling through what has unfortunately become a very confusing topic because the church at large, broadly speaking, has so clouded the idea of the Holy Spirit's power that we only think of it in terms of the miraculous sign gifts. And we've indicated why we need to wrestle through the text of Scripture. But as we've done so, we may have been tempted to think, well then, I guess it just doesn't work today. And for the next half of the series, we're going to show you it, he does work in just the same power. The Holy Spirit, we learn, calls us to salvation. He gives us new birth. The Holy Spirit makes us holy. He sanctifies us. He, the Holy Spirit gives us baptism into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit helps our prayers unto the Father. The Holy Spirit perseveres in our faith. And even though we might not see this brilliant, unexplainable, miraculous healing, the kind evidenced in the apostles and the prophets and Jesus... None of this evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is natural. It is all supernatural. Any growth you see in Christ, any salvation of a sinner, that is all supernatural. That is powerful. That is the Holy Spirit. None of these things could be accomplished without him. We would, in fact, be hopelessly lost without him. But there is one ministry of the Spirit in particular that I want to call your attention to this evening as we study it. The Holy Spirit has given every believer a powerful gift that you can exercise for God's glory and the good of his church. And as we approach this subject, 
I want to turn our memory back to Scripture and turn forward from Romans 8 to Romans chapter 12. Because in Romans chapter 12, we begin to read Paul exhort us about these spiritual gifts that God has given to us through the Holy Spirit's working that are powerful and to be put to work in the church. And here's what he says in Romans 12, verse 3. For I say, through the grace given unto you, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one of members one of another, having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. This, these are the gifts. Of course, you had to turn your memory back, and hopefully you could quote that with us, because that was one of our scripture memory passages just a second ago. But let's ask this question as we begin. What are spiritual gifts. Romans 12 is one of several passages in the New Testament that addresses the nature and kind of spiritual gifts. They are called spiritual gifts because they are special abilities given to us as a gift from the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is dealing with the Corinthians' abuse of spiritual gifts, you'll notice the word spirit. And you are given these gifts by the Spirit, and there is no gifting apart from the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11 says, But all these worketh that one selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. There is so much that can be said about the subject of the Holy Spirit and what are spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit, but let me at least enumerate several. First of all, every believer has a gift. Now, this gifting is not natural. It is supernatural. This is unusual. It may be a new ability you receive at salvation. It may be an ability that was dormant in your pre-converted state that the Holy Spirit brings to life once you are converted. It may be an ability you were using it for an entirely different purpose, but now you are saved and the Holy Spirit is going to redirect that ability and fuel it for God's glory. Think of it in this way. Have you ever thought about the Apostle Paul's ingenuity and zeal even before he met Jesus Christ? Pre-conversion, Paul was directing those abilities towards destroying these, the church. And it's almost as though the Holy Spirit took all those talents, turned Paul around, and used that same ingenuity skill and that same zeal that he had, but now it was packaged for Christ through the Holy Spirit. But the point is that every believer is given a gift by the Holy Spirit. You have a gift. We'll exegete that in a moment. But I want you to note that every gift is not the same. We could list all the gifts that the New Testament talks about, and I will. Here it is on the chart. Put it on the screen for you. If you're in the back and the top font is small because I had to get it all on one slide, you can turn around and it's closer to you back there. There are, four, there are four main passages that lift out these gifts, and it's good and helpful. I find this chart helpful because I think you'll see something. So you can see in Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, the passages we just read, we have the gifts of prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, liberality, giving aid, acts of mercy. 
1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11, we have the gifts of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, working of miracles, prophecy, ability to distinguish spirits, various tongues, interpretation of tongues. Those are the gifts given there in 1 Corinthians 12. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And 1 Peter 4, 11, we have speaking and service. Now, for our purposes, I want to call your attention to 1 Peter 4, 11. In 1 Peter 4, 11, it says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. If you were going to categorize spiritual gifts, you would categorize them as speaking and serving. In fact, we could list perfectly all the other gifts with little crossover underneath both of those headings, speaking and serving. I should mention then that the lists of gifts of the New Testament are not necessarily exhaustive. In other words, there are maybe more gifts than the Spirit gives than those that are mentioned in the list because no two lists are alike. We have to be careful that we consider something to be spiritual gift based on its kind then, not on its listedness. Sometimes you have um, those that will give you those, maybe you've seen them, and I, I find them, they're almost Christian Enneagrams, you know. You've got to take these tests to figure out what spiritual gift you are. And then you, you, know, you fill it out, and if A equals B, or 1 equals 5, or I don't know, it's all, it's all weird, and it's all just kind of silly, quite frankly. And then you come to discover what your spiritual gift is. Number one, I've got two problems with that. Number one, the Bible expressly says you should desire more. So if you come to the bottom of your list and you say, this is mine, I guess it's what I have for the rest of my life, the Bible expressly says you should want more. So number one, if you're going to settle after that, that's probably not a good reason to take the test. And number two, the Bible expressly does not list with crossover the gifts. And if there's no crossover there, we can stay, even as, as students of hermeneutics, so we just finished hermeneutics class, it's not a comfortable thing to do hermeneutically to say, well, there's no crossover, but obviously it's exhaustive, when the Bible clearly doesn't say it's exhaustive. But the Bible does give us kinds, speaking and serving, which help as headings. Imagine then, if someone comes to our church leadership tomorrow and says, my spiritual gift is drama. And based on my spiritual gift of drama, I'm going to put on a play, and that play is my spiritual gift. Now that person may have the gift of service, and may have the gift of helps, and maybe even have the gift of administration to put on something like that. But if that person wants to be the director of the play, maybe they are and a good administrator. And you could certainly apply that to something like drama, but you cannot just assume that the Holy Spirit is supernaturally giving you something that's never mentioned in Scripture either. Suddenly drama becomes a spiritual gift. All I'm saying here is that you need to be careful what you call a spiritual gift. Let the Spirit guide you in that decision. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God has given to them. Are there abilities that could be giftedness of the Spirit? Could music be a giftedness of the Spirit? Absolutely, it would fall under service. Could drama? It could, but be careful that we're being wise when it comes to our giftedness. All I have to say to do with the first point is kind of be kind of a table setter then for the rest of it. 
Here's the question. What are spiritual gifts? Well, one, we know every believer has a gift, and two, every gift is not the same. We could at least pull that much out of it. And I want to give you some practical information about what these gifts are before we begin to look at the why and how. So that's why we started there. But that's just to table set us for the Romans 12 passage that we are in. Number two, why did God give spiritual gifts? There is real wisdom in knowing who you are within God's plan. There's real wisdom in always asking the whys of Scripture because it applies it. And Paul is fond of why questions. In fact, the book of Romans, in, in large sense, was written to answer why. A number of whys, but certainly broadly speaking, why. And so here in Romans 12, it come, should come as no surprise that concerning spiritual gifts, Paul's now going to give us the why. And Paul's going to do it by using an analogy he's become fond of. He loves to use the analogy of the body. It allows him to draw the attention to the head, which is Christ. He says in Ephesians, actually in Ephesians 5, verse 23, as Christ is the head of the body, he is the savior of the body. The church then, to Paul, many times, an analogy is like a body. It is characterized by both unity, one body, and diversity, many members. And so it is, Paul says, with spiritual gifts. It is characterized by unity, one body, one, one spirit, and diversity, many giftedness within that body. So God gives the church gifts, number one, because there is diversity in the body. Notice how throughout this passage, Paul harps on the theme of diversity. Verse 4, he says, we are many members. Verse 4, and all members are not the same office, being many are one body, having gifts then differing according to grace, let us love without dissimulation. Notice the, the diversity that is seen there. And a diversity is what makes us a living organism. Paul knows that without diversity, as one preacher, an old preacher, I said, without diversity in the church, we would be a monstrosity, right? If we were all thumbs, that would be weird, okay? And look at your body, basically, as an illustration. What if all your members were alike? How would that function for you? What if you were all thumbs? Chaos and confusion would reign. What if your toes were eyes, right? That would be weird. What if you were all uh, elbows or whatever. I know some of you say, I'm, I'm just two left feet. Okay, all right? Therefore, we must understand that we are not all alike, but we must do more than understand that we are diverse. We must embrace that diversity. Organizing around the gifts of your people will allow the church to focus on ministry, not maintenance. A gift-based ministry encourages teamwork. A gifts-based ministry makes better use of talents. As we mentioned in our new members class every time, when someone adds to the church, when they join the church, our prayerful hope is that they are adding something diverse to our body that we might yet be missing. And we are praising the Lord as they are added that they are different than us because we are praying that they will add something to us that God would have us have. That's the diversity. We, we love that. We embrace that. We are a gifts-based ministry encouraging that kind of teamwork. And building your structure on gifts and talents within the church promotes creativity, and it allows for spontaneous growth. And so God gives church gifts for the diversity of the body. And second, God gives the church gifts because there is individuality in the body. 
Do you know that you are essential and indispensable to this church? Do you realize that there are certain ministries and assignments that will not happen if you don't do them? Why? Because there is an individuality and an utter uniqueness to the body. As much as Paul emphasizes the diversity in this passage, he also emphasizes the individuality of those within the diverse body in this passage. Again, the same verses, but you could do the exercise the other way around. All members have not the same office. Did you notice that? Or individually, the ESV puts it, members one of another. Or having then gifts that are differing. There's a difference. When, Paul, when God rather saved you, he gifted you to serve him uniquely and individually. You are gifted in ways that I may not be, and I may be gifted in ways that you may not be. Again, the illustration of the body points to this. Diversity is important in the body, but so is individuality. What if the foot said one day, I don't feel like acting like a foot, I'd rather be a brain. Right? That would not work well for you. But what if the hand said, I'm tired of picking up things, I'm going to walk around today. I'd rather just walk on my hands. I've met a few people that might be able to do that, but that most of the time is not going to work out well for you. You do need diversity in your body, but you also need each body part to embrace their individuality. No one has all the gifts, and no one gift is for all. For God's church, for this church to accomplish all that God deserves, each one of us must do what God saved and gifted us to do. We are not all alike. We don't all act alike. We don't all serve alike. God has uniquely designed you to do what you can do. And so the question when it comes to spiritual gifts is this. So what are you doing? If God gave you a gift, there is a diversity of the body, but there's also an individuality in the body, then that individuality speaks to every individual. So the question then becomes, what is it that you are doing? If you were to be asked by the Lord, this is, and the Lord says, what is it that you are doing to help grow the other brothers and sisters in Christ and yourself and the Lord says, now what is it that you do in the church? Could you immediately come up with an answer? That's what the Holy Spirit's power is in the church. You want to be part of a powerful church, be part of a church that serves one another. That's the why. And third, how then do you use spiritual gifts? There's really no point in having a discussion on the what and the why without applying the how. The section of Scripture comes at the heels of Paul's great challenge. Remember, Paul's great challenge began in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, which, by the way, is your reasonable service of worship. And we pursue, according to verse 2, a transformed life. This radically new life will be different than our old one, especially in our attitudes and how we think of ourselves. And so you must use your gift humbly, as we've noted even before, when we looked at this passage, perhaps with a different lens on than we're looking at it this evening in the light of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts should produce humility. And this is, in many ways, a repeat of what we said last week. Remember last week we were in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we were looking at the misuse of spiritual gifts in Corinth. And we were highlighting that Paul's main problem with their use of spiritual gifts in Corinth is that they were doing it out of arrogance. 
They were basically saying, I have this giftedness and you don't. And so they were painting themselves in 1 Corinthians and then again in 2 Corinthians, Paul addresses it. And he's basically saying they were calling themselves super apostles. We're better than the rest of you guys. And Paul basically says, that is absolutely wrong. Everything you should do according to verse 13 even if, 1 Corinthians 13, even if you had all of those gifts, even if you did all that amazing things, even if you had more talent than most of us have in our pinky fingers, and you just incredible, if you do all of that stuff and you don't have love, it amounts to nothing. So love is really a humble love. And that becomes Paul's highlight. And here, again, he says the same thing in verse 13. On the heels of verses 3 through 8, talking about giftedness and all of that, Paul says in verse 13, don't think of yourself. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. In other words, God manages what he gives you to include what gift or gifts you have from the Holy Spirit. There are two opposite but equally dangerous ditches to fall into here when it comes to spiritual gifts. One, don't bemoan the fact you have a gift that someone else, that you don't have a gift rather someone else has. That would be a ditch to fall into. And number two, don't become arrogant with your gifts as if your gift is more important than someone else's gift. That would be the other ditch. Be humble before the Lord. And notice Paul's phrase that pointed to his authority to say these things. He says in this verse, for I say. It's kind of interesting. For I say. Paul knew he was an apostle. He was a leader in the church. But note that Paul never forgot he was also a sinner saved by grace. For I say, through the grace given unto me. Even in his introduction, Paul demonstrates his own practice of humility. But Paul does not limit his instructions. It's easy to say to every man that is among you, this is something you all need to hear. He says then in verse 3, not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think. A form of the word think, for neo, appears four times in that verse. A transformed life will result in humility, not pride, which will be visibly seen in a spiritual think, not a super think. Apparently, As Paul has said it here in Romans 12, and we noted it last week in 1 Corinthians, there's a major problem when it comes to giftedness in the church, or spiritual giftedness in the church. God gifts to us abilities, and the problem is, when we have them, we will think, look at me. That's a major problem. Philip Brooks made an apt comment when he said, a true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. So Paul calls for humility. Whenever our ego is involved in our thinking, our thinking becomes distorted because of our natural self-love. We will always think too highly of ourselves. So Paul says, be humble, think soberly. Self-love distorts our perception of reality. As frequently mentioned in the Bible, especially in Proverbs, humility leads us to see and act and accept truth. Humility sees things as they are. Pride sees things in a puffed-up way which feeds our ego. So how do I use my spiritual gifts? Humbly, it could not be emphasized anymore. 
But there's also something that is said and yet unsaid at the same time. Not only do you use it humbly, but as I've noted many times before, even in this passage, there's an obviously something else. Do something. <laughs> like literally use your gift actively. You don't just, God doesn't just give you a gift to sit on it. As if like the Sunday school song, you know, hide your lamp under a bushel basket. Paul now addresses seven different spiritual gifts that God has given. And again, this list is not to be exhaustive, though these gifts are essential. And Paul points to these gifts, and, and we're not going to so much as exegete each gift, because we've done a lot of that already in this series, but I want you to know precisely what Paul is trying to communicate. Here's what he's saying in verse 6. If you have the gift of prophecy, Paul's point is prophesy. Prophecy is the ability to declare truth. This is the one who communicates revealed truths in a way that convicts, edifies, rebukes, and challenges. If you have the gift of ministry, Paul's point is minister. Minister could be translated, again, as helping or serving. It's the word diakonoye, from which we get our word deacon, even. The one who has the gift of service, if you're a gifted server, serve. If you have the gift of teaching, you should teach. If a prophet is one who declares truth, a teacher is one who explains or defines truth. One puts it, says, take it away and the body becomes prey to wolves and false teachers. If you have the gift of teaching, teach. If you have the gift of exhor exhortation, Paul's point is, exhort. This gift urges spiritual growth in others. It emphasizes the practical application of biblical truth to everyday life. The word means to encourage or to come alongside. If you're an encourager, I have, there are some in this room I know are encouragers because you've encouraged me. I thank the Lord for that. If you have the gift of encouragement, encourage. If you have the gift of giving, verse 8, give. This gift is sensitive to and provides for the needs of fellow believers and ministers with joy and generosity and integrity. The person has a God-given ability to see needs, to give to meet needs. They love that. that and you've met some. Some of you are that person. You just you light up when you have the ability to give. I, I, that's wonderful, so give. If you have the gift of leadership, verse 8, lead. This person has a vision and they have a direction like a sea captain at the helm, they are ready to go, and they are going to move. If you have the gift of mercy, verse 8, show mercy. It's the joyful cheerfulness that shows compassion and kindness towards others. What is Paul's point? It's abundantly clear, at least it should be. If you're gifted, which you are, then use it. But why do many believers barely use their giftedness? It could be that they're too busy, it could be that they're taught incorrectly. It could be that they have confusion on the matter. But Paul says there's really only one reason that someone wouldn't use their giftedness. Look at the reason. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. You have grace. If you don't have, if you're, if you're not showing your giftedness, there's only two reasons why. Number one, you don't have grace. <laughs> you're not saved, or number two, you are ungrateful. Has God's grace motivated you today? If it has, you will serve. While most Christians still identify as Christian, there's a big difference between being part of a church and being involved in a church. 
Many books have been written about the so-called 2080 problem. The 2080 problem is that most churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I'm thankful that this is not true about our church. We don't have that statistic. But among religious organizations, broadly speaking, in the United States today, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have the largest shares of members who are actively involved in their congregations. According to a new analysis of a date from Pew Research Center's Religious Landscape Study, here's what they found in 2021. 67% of Mormons have a high level of involvement. 67%. 64% of Jehovah's Witnesses have a high level of involvement in the local church. What about overall mainline evangelical churches? What is their level of involvement? Ready for it? By the way, before I give you the number, Mormons don't have the true gospel. Jehovah's Witnesses don't have the true gospel. They are working a works-based religion that will lead them to a damnable place called hell lest someone tells them the truths of Scripture, and yet they zealously get involved. What about evangelical or so-called evangelical churches that do preach the gospel message? How's their level of involvement? After all, according to what we see in Scripture, if you're saved, you've been given a gift to serve, so surely it's 100%. That's what the Bible seems to indicate, it's 100%. You ready for it? 19%. Now, how could that be? How can we experience the grace of God by doing, by having the grace of God, by be giving the grace of God and not serve? How is that even possible for a believer to be saved but not serve? If you're taking notes, just three letters. S-I-N. That's all it is. There's no real reason to sugarcoat it. We'll just call it what it is. It's always best to call sin, sin. God has made it abundantly clear. It could not be any more crystal clear. Paul just takes a list of gifts, and he says, if you have this, do it. If you have this, do it. If you have this, do it. Basically, his understanding is, do it. Oh, and by the way, to the Corinthians, the ones that have been struggling with spiritual gifts, here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether you are eating or drinking or whatever you are doing, do all to the glory of God. Now, you probably had that verse memorized, but do you understand what his implication is? You are doing something. Whether you're eating or you're drinking or whatever you're doing, you are doing. It's not like you're doing nothing. It doesn't, I don't get the impression from Paul that he had to kick them, the believers in the pants and tell them to serve. I get the impression from Paul that they were serving. He had to direct their service because they were becoming prideful in their service. But the problem wasn't that there wasn't service going on. What a difference we have in our culture. The problem is we're just not statistically at least serving. Do you want to know why the Spirit has given you a special ability? It is because you are a part of that gift for His glory to take part in the most glorious work on earth, the building of Christ's church. And this idea is reflected in verse 4 of our passage. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Wayne Grudem says in his Systematic Theology textbook, spiritual gifts are given to equip the church to carry out its ministry until Christ returns. That's why you have them. 
Now, Paul's words raise some important questions I called your attention as we close, for they require answers which only you can give. And I will conclude by raising these questions, and I urge you not to leave the text without arriving at some answers to these questions. I don't have them on the screen, but I'll read them for you. There are four. Number one, have you received God's eternal gift of life? If not, this subject of spiritual gifts is but an academic exercise for you, a purely hypothetical question. If you are a child of God's, then along with spiritual life, you have been given spiritual gifts, so use it. But have you received God's eternal gift of grace in your life? Number two, why are you interested in spiritual gifts? Is your pursuit and interest in spiritual gifts one of personal ambition motivated by self-interest? Or... Do you, out of gratitude, wish to offer up your body as a living sacrifice to God, as Paul says you should in Romans 12, verse 1? If you wish to be sacrificially serving God and others, then spiritual gifts are the means God has provided for you to do so. Paul says at the beginning of this passage, offer yourself a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable service. How do I do that, Paul? The giftedness God gave to you. So why are you interested in spiritual gifts? Is it because you want to be a living sacrifice? Number three, how closely are you linked to a local church? Spiritual gifts are not given so that we may set ourselves apart or above the rest of the body. Spiritual gifts are to be employed by serving the body, and they also cause us to be dependent upon the body to be made stronger. How do you know when a young person is called to be a pastor or a preacher? You know how you know it? The body recognizes it. That's what happened in my life. I'm sure that's what happened in each of our other pastors' lives. I'm sure if we polled our missionaries, that's how our missionaries were understanding. It's through the local congregation that you see your gifts. You say, Pastor Caleb, you told me not to take a spiritual gift test. That's exactly right. How am I going to know how to do my spiritual, what my spiritual gifts are? Go to church. That's how you know. Just go around, brothers and sisters in Christ, and you will find that God will, through their working in your life, push you in a direction, and you'll know pretty quickly, and just ask anybody who's been a part in service of a church long enough, and they will tell you that's exactly what happened in their life. And number four, how are you looking to serve the body? Paul teaches again that every believer has a special enablement, a spiritual gift by which to serve God. You are to be a steward of this gift. Do you know what it is that God has entrusted you to do? Have you found a place of service? If not, why not? I am convinced that the matter of spiritual gifts is not as mysterious as some suggest it to be. I am convinced that the matter of spiritual gifts has become mysterious because the devil would rather us muse about it than actually do something. God wants us to be involved. And we have spent a while going through the mystery that so many have traipsed into our churches when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, I got it honest, I want every message to end edifying and applicationally based, and it's hard when you're dealing with so much false teaching. And I want to just end on truth and not dwell on the false heresies. This evening's message, we're not even talking about those false heresies. We're just looking at biblical truth, and we're saying, here is the reality and you may have just traipsed with us in all of those other sermons that we've been doing in the Holy Spirit, and you might say, but if only we could be 
doing miracles and, and having demon possessions and all of that kind of stuff, or, or not demon possessions, demon uh, exorcisms, right? And all that other kind of stuff that we see happen in the New Testament. If we had that, right, the Holy Spirit would be demonstrated and, and maybe he's just not as powerfully at work as he was back then. And I have wonderful news for you. Not only is he as powerfully at work, he wants to use you as part of that power. Praise the Lord, you can be part of the Holy Spirit's power at this age today. And you don't have to pray a special you know, prayer and walk a special aisle. You know what you need to do? You just need to call out to God, talk to God and say, God, let me be a part of your program on earth. I want to. I know you've gifted me to do so. Let it be done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that God has given to every man and woman to be a part of his amazing work on earth. And Lord, sometimes in the milieu of all of the confusion that has been whirled up in our church culture regarding the Holy Spirit, we forget the truths that are found housed very clearly in God's word. And perhaps no passage is more clear about giftedness and the need to just be involved than Romans 12. Lord, may we as a body of believers commit to being living sacrifices that we would be involved by using what you have given to us in, in neat and special ways. Lord, may this body be an army that...